If you have a Bible, please open to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. This year we're reading through the New Testament together. And this morning we come to the end of 2 Corinthians. On Sunday mornings and on Wednesdays, we're talking about passages that we have read the previous week. In the early part of the year, the going was slow because the Gospels are long books. The book of Acts is a long book. Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, they're all long books. I'll just give you a warning that we're about to push the accelerator down, and we're going to be reading books quickly. We're going to be going through entire books, sometimes multiple books, in a single week. But this is our last Sunday in 2 Corinthians. I mentioned this last week just to sort of set the stage. The book of 2 Corinthians, Paul's letter, second letter to the church in Corinth, is divided into three parts. Chapter 1 through 7 focus on strengthening the church, encouraging the church. Chapters 8 and 9, we looked at chapter 8 last week, talk about stewardship, giving, generosity, how do we handle money. The last section of the book, 10, 11, 12, 13, is a call for repentance. And the people that Paul is calling to repentance are the small minority in Corinth who are still at this point loyal to a group of teachers that Paul calls the super apostles. And he calls them that tongue-in-cheek. He calls them that really to mock them, to say these guys make much of themselves And they're not preaching the same gospel. They're preaching a different gospel. They're talking about Jesus, but he says in 2 Corinthians, they're talking about another Jesus, a different Jesus. And so Paul in this last part of the book is calling the church away from the super apostles and away from the teaching of the super apostles back to the truth of the gospel. That brings us to chapter 12 verse 1, where Paul says, I must go on boasting. And I want you to understand that in chapter 12, when Paul begins to talk about boasting, he's referring back. He says, I must go on boasting. He's been boasting, and that happens at the end of chapter 11. And so if your Bible's open, I think it's helpful for you to see this. Look at 2 Corinthians 11, verse 16. Paul says, I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little. The super apostles were experts at boasting. And Paul has pointed that out to criticize them. And now he says, okay, if boasting is the game, let me do a little bit of boasting. And he acknowledges here, the language is a bit hard to make sense of in English, but he says, look, I understand I'm being a bit foolish here. This is a bit tongue-in-cheek, but let me do some boasting. Verse 22, are they Hebrews? Well, so am I. Are they Israelites? Well, so am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. He says, I know I'm talking like a madman, but let me boast about some things. And this is where Paul's boasting takes a detour. He begins to boast about things that we usually don't boast about. He boasts about countless beatings, often near death, five times the hands of the Jews, the 40 lashes, lest one, three times beaten with rods, once stoned, three times shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea, 
frequent journeys, danger from rivers, from robbers, from my own people, from the Gentiles, in the city, in the wilderness, at the sea, from false brothers, toil, hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger, thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all of the churches." That's what Paul's boasting about, and we pick up this boasting in chapter 12, verse 1, where he says, I must go on boasting. Now, I want to give you the big idea of the passage, but before I do, I want you to understand what this passage is not primarily about. Our passage, 2 Corinthians 12, 1 to 10, is not primarily about how to have ecstatic spiritual experiences And it is not primarily about how to engage in spiritual warfare. Now, what we're about to read, Paul talks about a spiritual experience, and he certainly talks about spiritual warfare. But those are not the primary purpose of this section of verses. Here's the big idea, the primary thing that Paul is trying to communicate to the church in Corinth. The grace of God produces humility in the lives of His people. When you experience God's grace, your life will increasingly be marked by humility, not boasting like the super apostles, not being puffed up, not being a braggart, not having a big head, but your life will be marked by humility. Take your copy of the Scriptures. Let's read these verses together. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 1. Paul says, inspired by the Holy Spirit, I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who, 14 years ago, was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. He heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weakness. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool. For I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So, to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, 
persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's the Word of God. Let's pray together. Father, as your people, we gather together this morning around your Word. Your Word is true. Your Word is firmly fixed forever in the heavens. Your Word was challenged even in the days of Paul's ministry in Corinth. And your Word is still challenged today by many super apostles and their heirs and their protégés. Father, this morning, give us ears to hear the truth. Give us minds to understand a challenging passage. and Give us hearts that are willing to submit to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you, when you were growing up, had a parent or a grandparent who liked to tell you, be careful what you ask for? Anybody ever tell you that? Maybe be careful what you wish for. You probably heard that nugget of wisdom somewhere along the way in your life. Best I can tell, that concept goes back at least to Aesop's fables, an ancient collection of writings that teach moral, sort of practical truths. You've heard that saying or that sentiment in numerous songs or TV shows or movies. Be careful what you ask for. I think it's a good sentiment to remind ourselves of this morning because when I look around and I talk with people in our church and outside of our church and I interact with old friends online on social media, many times Christian people communicate the idea, they communicate the longing that if they could just see God, if they could just for once in their life audibly hear God speak to them from heaven, if they could just for once in their life have a tangible experience of the invisible God, then their life as a Christian and their faith as a Christian would be so much better for it. Maybe you've thought that before. Maybe you found yourself in a stage of life where you just found yourself saying, God, I just, I, I wish I could see you. I wish I could hear for you. And the preacher says, well, open your Bible. And you say, I know I can open my Bible. I just want to hear God audibly speak to me. And the preacher says, well, read your Bible out loud. And you say, preacher, that's not what I'm talking about. I just want to hear him communicate to me. I need to have some tangible experience. If you've ever found yourself thinking that, I would remind you of a couple of things this morning. Number one, in the Old Testament, the people of Israel heard from God a lot, and they saw the manifestation of God's presence on multiple occasions, and they had incredible experiences with the one true God, and they consistently struggled in the faith department. Those experiences did not just completely solidify and strengthen their faith like you might think they will. I would also remind you of what the book of Hebrews says about the nature of faith. It is the conviction of things not seen. That's what faith is. 
So I'd remind you of Old Testament Israel. I would remind you of Hebrews and its definition of faith. I would also say to you, like your mom or your dad or your grandma or your grandpa, be careful what you ask for. Be careful what you ask for. In this passage, the Apostle Paul describes a spiritual experience that many of us at one point or another have found ourselves thinking, I just need that kind of experience. If I could just make one trip to heaven, I don't need to stay long. You can send me right back. I just need to go. I need to see it. I need to hear it. I need to experience it. Well, Paul did that, and he talks about it in this passage. And then he talks about a humbling experience that accompanied that spiritual experience. And most of us would say, I want the first, but not the latter. I would like to go to heaven and listen to the angels sing for five or ten minutes. But the thorn in the flesh stuff, I'll pass. Be careful what you ask for. When I read this passage... There's a number of questions that come up in my mind. I've listed seven questions here. These are not the only questions I have, but I had to cut some of my questions out for the sake of time, and we're going to focus on some of the big questions about this passage. Before we try to apply it to our lives, I just want us to try and make sense of what it says and what Paul is talking about here. So quickly, questions about 2 Corinthians 12, 1 to 10. First of all, who is the man? Verse 2, Paul says, I know a man. Who is that man? There are a few Bible scholars who say it's Apollos. We've read about Apollos in First and Second Corinthians. There's a few Bible scholars throughout history who said it might be Peter. We read in the book of Acts that Peter had a vision, involved some hearing from the Lord, and so some people have said maybe it's Peter, but the vast majority, really the overwhelming, unquestioned majority of Bible scholars understand that when Paul says, I know a man, he's talking about himself, which brings me to a really important question in making sense of this passage in the context of 2 Corinthians 10 to 13. Why would Paul switch from the third person to the first person? Why would he start off talking about, quote, a man, and then later in the passage start saying, I. Why would he talk about this vision of heaven as if it happened to someone else, and then talk about the thorn in the flesh as if it happened to him? Clearly it did. And I think the answer lies in the the teaching of the super apostles. These super apostles came to Corinth behind Paul, and they boasted What did they boast in? They boasted in their accomplishments, their resumes, their talents, their abilities. And Paul has mocked that. And he said, okay, you want to boast? I'll boast. Lost at sea, nearly beat to death, thrown in jail, the pressure of all the churches. I can boast. And then he gets down to this passage and he says, okay, I'm going to boast. But he doesn't want to take credit for this experience in any way, shape, or form. That's sort of what he's getting at in this middle chunk of verses where he talks about verse 5 and verse 6. On behalf of this man, I'll boast, but not on my own behalf. only going to boast of my weaknesses. Essentially what he's saying is I'm going to tell you about a spiritual experience that I had, but I don't want to take any credit for it, so I'm not even going to use the first person pronoun I. I'm just going to talk about a man. 
But then I'm going to come full circle and I'm going to talk about my weaknesses in this thorn. And I'm going to make sure you understand that it was I, the Apostle Paul, who dealt with this thorn in the flesh. So I think he's trying to distance himself from the arrogant boasting of the super apostles. Switches from the third person to the first. He says in verse 2 that this man was caught up into the third heaven. What is the third heaven? I don't think that you are to imagine levels of heaven like you might have levels of a department store. Level one, you take the escalator up. Level two, level two, you take the escalator up. Level three, the bottom level is okay. The second is a little bit better. The third is the best. I don't think that's what Paul is trying to suggest to you. I think Paul, a Hebrew, is playing off the Old Testament Hebrew word for heaven, which does a lot of lifting in the Old Testament. The Hebrew word heaven can refer to the sky where the birds fly around. The Hebrew word heaven can refer to outer space outside of our atmosphere. Or that same Hebrew word for heaven can refer to the very presence of God. Not just something you can get in a rocket and shoot up to, but the very presence of God the Creator. And I think Paul gives us a clue that that's what he's alluding to, the third heaven. Not just the sky, not just outer space, but the presence of God. In verse 3, He says, this man was caught up into paradise. Paradise. The Greek translation of the Old Testament uses that word paradise in the book of Genesis to talk about the Garden of Eden, the place where God lived with His people. Jesus used that word when speaking to the thief on the cross and giving him hope. Today you will be with me in paradise, the very presence of God. That's where we're going today. When Paul says, I was caught up into the third heaven, or this man was caught up into the third heaven, he's saying, I'm not just talking about levitation in the sky. I'm not just talking about going to the moon or the sun or the stars. I'm talking about an experience of the very presence of God, the third heaven. The danger was pride. And that brings us to this question in verse 4. What did Paul hear? Paul says, it's unutterable. I can't tell you about it. I can't put it into words. I can't articulate it. Verse 3, I don't even know if it was in the body or out of body. God knows what was going on. Verse 4, I heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. And the danger in this amazing spiritual experience that Paul had is that he would be puffed up, that he would be proud, that he would be arrogant, that he would think himself something special or important, which brings us to the thorn. Verse 7, to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. Now, you need to understand this. The thorn in the flesh was given to Paul to keep him from being conceited. He says it again at the end of verse 7, a messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from being conceited. Now, you want to go down rabbit trails, just Google what was Paul's thorn in the flesh. I'll check in with you in a month. 
there's all kinds of ideas. Some people think it was demonic oppression or temptation of some kind. Maybe what Paul talks about in Ephesians 6, wrestling against the principalities and the powers, we're going to come to that concept in a minute. Some people say it was a physical ailment of some kind, maybe the result of all the beatings and the shipwreck and the abuse and the getting stoned and all of those things. Or Some people say maybe it was his eyesight. There's some indications in the New Testament that Paul didn't have great eyesight, so some people say it was maybe blindness. I read a tweet this week that said, I think Paul's thorn in the flesh was a Lego he stepped on in the middle of the night. Obviously, that was a joke, but some people say it was something physical that Paul struggled with. Some people think it was his enemies in the gospel. It was these Judaizers, these super apostles who would come behind him and stir up trouble in all of his churches. And he looked back on these churches that he cared about and he said, I just wish I could get rid of these people. Why would God allow this to happen? Why couldn't God just get rid of these folks? They're destroying the church? Short answer is, we don't know what the thorn in the flesh was, but we do know why it was given to Paul, and we do know that Paul says something really interesting. In talking about the thorn in the flesh, he describes whatever it is as a messenger from Satan, which brings us to the question, how in the world was Satan involved in this? And without spending too much time here, I think the template that you need to think through is the book of Job. Book of Job is a hard book to make sense of. But it's clear from the beginning of the book that Satan is real and that God is real and that Satan and God have a plan for Job's life. Satan's plan is to destroy Job, and in the process to make God look pitiful. God has a different plan, and God's plan is to allow Job to suffer so that he, God, might look glorious. One thing happening to Job, Satan is involved, God is involved, they each have a different aim in it. I think that's what Paul's describing here. Satan had a plan for Paul to destroy him through this thorn in the flesh and to hinder the advance of the gospel. That was the plan of Satan. God also had a plan. God's plan was to allow this thorn into Paul's life and to not take it away so that he would not be conceited. You understand that a messenger of Satan would want Paul to be conceited. That's right up Satan's alley. So this thorn in the flesh was a messenger of Satan sent to destroy Paul in some way, but the ultimate purpose, God's purpose, is that Paul would not be conceited. One last question, and this is the hard one. Why in the world did God not answer Paul's prayers? Why did He not answer Paul's prayers? Paul says in this passage, verse 8, I pleaded with the Lord, not once, not twice, but three times. I pleaded with the Lord. I begged God to take this thorn away, whatever it was, whoever it was. I pleaded with God to take it away. And God said, no. 
And the Lord Jesus responded, verse 9, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Let's transition from our questions to application. And as we apply this passage to our lives, this final question, why did God not answer Paul's prayers, will become a bit more clear. Three lessons from our passage. The first one is this. Satan is real, and he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking people to devour. That's happening in 2 Corinthians 12. That's what Peter talks about in 1 Peter 5.8. I've lifted Peter's words to make this point. Satan is real. The devil is real. He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking people to devour. This last week at preteen camp, we talked about this concept with our preteens. Talk about something that young people need to know as they get ready to launch out into the world in increasing new ways. They need to understand that there is an enemy who wants to devour you. And the Bible says to young people, to middle-aged people, to old people, you had better put on the whole armor of God if you are going to stand against the schemes of the devil. The whole armor of God. That's what we talked about this last week at preteen camp. There is not one place in the Bible, never from beginning to end, never, 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 are you and I called to obsess over Satan or the devil or demons or all of this sort of spiritual warfare stuff. We're never called to obsess over spiritual forces of evil. However, from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, we are called to understand that we have spiritual enemies who want to destroy us. Satan is real. Demons are real. And they really want to destroy you. They want to destroy your career. They want to destroy your family. They want to destroy this church. They want to destroy your relationship with your spouse, your relationship with your children, your relationship with your parents. They want to destroy you. Many times Americans live as if we don't have these sorts of enemies. C.S. Lewis said it like this. This is a quote I've shared with you a number of times. He said, there's two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, the devils, are equally pleased by both errors and they hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. The materialist says, there are no spiritual forces of evil. The magician says they're out there and I need to somehow control them and name them and interact with them. And Lewis says, look, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places are fine with either error. The dominant error where we live, when we live, is to ignore them, to believe that they're not real. It's been said the greatest trick the devil ever played was convincing the world he did not exist. Would it change the way you walked to your car if I told you that our parking lot was filled with landmines? It might. 
Would it change the way that you drive to lunch in a little while if I told you that there would be hundreds of drunk drivers on the road at the same time you're on the road? It might. Would it change the way that you lay your head on the pillow tonight if I told you that the thief was coming to your house tonight? Probably so. What if I told you that there are spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places that want to devour you? Would that change the way that you live today? Would that make you more serious about putting on the whole armor of God? Listen, we could elaborate at great length about what these spiritual forces of evil want to happen in your life. Let me just give you a a basic idea of what they're looking for. They want you to doubt the truthfulness of God's Word. Did God really say, don't eat of that tree? They want you to doubt the goodness of God. Why won't God take that thorn away from you? Doesn't He love you? They want you to doubt the very existence of God. Maybe God's not there at all. And your prayers are just going out into the air. They want you to doubt and question the value of God's church. What is the point in even coming here? We sing the same songs. We say the same thing. It's the same over and over and over again. What is the point? Spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, they want to devour you. Moving on. Second lesson from 2 Corinthians 12. Prayer is not inherently powerful nor is it primarily about changing our circumstances. Prayer is not inherently powerful, nor is it about changing our circumstances. I know what James 5.16 says. I've read it. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. I know it's popular for Christian people today to get online, to send emails, to make Facebook posts, and to imply if we could just get a few more righteous people praying for this, maybe God would be inclined to do things our way. But what I need you to understand for your spiritual health is that prayer is not inherently powerful any more than There's power in somebody saying, I'm sending you good vibes. What does that mean? I'm sending you good vibes. It's a nice thing that people might say to you, but what does that do for you? It does nothing for you. There's no power in good vibes. So I don't care what any charismatic teacher might tell you. I don't care what any new age guru might tell you. There's no inherent power in the act of prayer. In fact, the very act of prayer is about acknowledging what we all sang about 10, 15 minutes ago, God, I need you. I'm dependent on you. I'm desperate for you. God, I can't, but you can. Doesn't mean you have to, but it means that you can. Prayer is not about twisting God's arm to do things our way. 
The only reason prayer is powerful is because God is all-powerful. Prayer is not primarily about God changing your circumstances. Prayer is primarily about God changing you. And maybe your circumstances, but maybe not your circumstances. Verse 8, three times I pleaded with the Lord. If you read that and you've read the Old Testament, your mind should go back to Deuteronomy 3. Deuteronomy 3, Moses says, I pleaded with the Lord to let me go into the promised land. And he said, no. Paul here uses the same phrase, I pleaded with the Lord that this thorn might be taken from me. And each time, three times, he said, no. Some of you I know have been pleading with God about a situation or a circumstance in your life. Some of you have asked us as your church leaders to plead to God on your behalf, and we've been doing that, pleading with God to do something. And some of the times, God answers those prayers in the way that we want Him to. And some of the times, God simply says, no. Maybe it's a work situation. Maybe it's a health situation. Maybe it's a family situation. It could be any sort of circumstance or situation. You have been pleading with the Lord, and the Lord has simply said, no. Understand that that does not mean God has forgotten you does not mean that God is somehow, for some reason, angry with you. In fact, it may mean that God is intensely, actively at work in your life to make you more dependent on Him and more humble. Many times we hear no and we feel like, well, God, you have abandoned me at my greatest time of need. Maybe God is actively at work in your life through the answer of no. Brings us to the last truth that you need to see. God intends to make His people dependent and humble. Dependent and humble. I'm going to tell you something that I've observed. And I'm going to be honest with you. I have observed this in my own life and in the lives of the people that I've pastored over the last 15 years. I think many of us walk around with the unspoken assumption that God exists in heaven simply to do what we ask Him to do when we ask Him to do it. And as I say that out loud, you say, not me, not me, like T.D. Jakes, Joyce Meyer, Joel Osteen, Name it, claim it, health and wealth, Kenneth Copeland, all those people. Yeah, those people believe that. Susie at the office, my cousin Bob, whatever. Yeah, I know people, not me. I know you're the A-team. You're here at Sunday morning early service. The inclination is to think, no, I I don't believe that way. I don't think that way. I'm just going to tell you what I've observed in my own life and in the lives of the people that I've pastored is that when life gets tough, and in case you didn't know it, life is tough. 
If yours isn't tough today, talk to me tomorrow or next week or next month or next year. Life's tough. When life gets tough, Christian people tend to pray, probably more than they've been praying before life got tough. We tend to ask God to do things for us. God, do this, heal this person, fix this, change this, remove this. And sometimes God says, yes, and He answers those prayers, and we give thanks. And sometimes God says, no, my grace is sufficient for you, and my power is made perfect in your weakness. And what I have observed in my own life and in the lives of the people that I pastor is that when God says no, even if we don't identify with the crazy, name it, claim it, prosperity preachers and teachers, we step back and we say, either in our hearts or maybe out loud, God, why aren't you answering my prayers? God, why aren't you doing anything? God, I'm in the same mess that I was in last week and the month before and the year before. Nothing has changed. I have prayed about this. God, done my part. Now it's time for you to do your part. It's rooted in a very unbiblical assumption that God simply exists to do whatever it is that we ask Him to do in a timely manner. What if that assumption is wrong? What if God doesn't exist to do whatever we ask Him to do whenever we want Him to do it? What if, you might find this hard to believe or imagine, but what if God actually knows more about life than we do? The present, the future, eternity, the past, what if God sees more than we see and understands more than we can comprehend? What if the popular bloggers, authors, conference speakers, podcasters who keep telling you you're strong, you're capable, you're enough, you're the best, what if they're not speaking biblical truth? What if somebody like John Piper is right when he says that at any given moment, God is probably doing 10,000 things in your life and you might be aware of three of them? What if that's true? What if those who say to you, God won't give you more than you can handle, are speaking for the devil? And what if the Apostle Paul is actually on to something? Corey preached about this a couple of weeks ago. What if the Apostle Paul is actually on to something when he says, we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength, not almost up to the limit of our strength, beyond our strength. We despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we'd received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. What if God routinely gives people more than they can handle so that His grace and His strength are magnified? Let's go back even before Paul. Let's go to Jesus. What if Jesus of Nazareth 
was actually on to something important when he said this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You can listen to the super apostles and their modern day heirs and all their pop psychology advice and wisdom. Or you can listen to an older, truer wisdom from people like the Apostle Paul and Jesus of Nazareth. And you can understand that the kingdom of God is an upside down kingdom. It's not filled with strong, capable, enough people. It's filled with broken, helpless, dependent, humble people. This gets to the very heart of what we believe about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. We believe that God is holy and that we are sinners. And that we, in our sin, don't even have the ability left to ourselves to come to God and offer Him anything. And if we did have that ability, we don't have anything to offer Him. Instead, what we believe is that God came to us. He humbled Himself, and He became a servant, a servant obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's an upside-down kingdom, the King who dies for His people, the King who calls sinners to throw themselves on His grace and His mercy so that they might find life joy, peace, hope, eternity. Have you thrown yourself on the mercy of God revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ? Are you daily throwing yourself on the mercy of the Lord Jesus?